0: The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with
1: additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tipp City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the program today Keith Dowd. He has a new book out, and he joins us in studio. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Keith, uh, your new book is called Bosnia and Authors in a European Window, a Comparative Study. And the challenge for us on the program today is, how do we make this subject interesting to our listeners? How do we do that? How, how do we take them inside this very academic study and entertain them? Well, what's a
0: compelling about the study is uh, the world literature that many people know and read. And the way I, in world literature, I compare that literature to Bosnian authors. And the study comparative, you know, is, uh, builds, creates friendships between the authors. And so the friendships may not exist, they may not be real, uh, but when you construct them, they become real and they exist. And so, for me, what's exciting about the study is that I make these friendships between the Bosnian poet Mak Star and Homer, uh, the Bosnian novelist Mesha Selimovic and Dostoevsky, and then Ivo Andrich and uh, Tolstoy. So, these friendships are, help us understand. All the authors, you know, it's not like one dominates the other because in friendship, we're equals, right? So in some ways, I make Tolstoy equal to Andrich and Andrich equal to Tolstoy. So their friendship, there's a, like a peer relationship there. The same with Salimovich and Dostoevsky, and even so with Homer and d So what's exciting is this construction of friendships in the canon of world literature, if you will.
1: I think these Bosnian authors are absolutely unknown to most of our listeners. Uh, they might have heard of Andrich. Did anyone a Nobel Prize? That's right. Yeah. Okay, I had ha- I'd heard of Andrich, but the rest of them, the other two, I was not familiar with. Clearly, the the first one you talk about, the connection to Homer is mm. obvious mm. once you read about it. Yeah. But we have listeners out there who are going, "Who's Homer?" So let's start off. Let's do the ones that are well known, and then we'll sure. talk about these ones that no one's ever heard about. Who was Homer?
0: Well, Homer is that great epic poet. Uh, I expect every, in every high school, every college literature course, he's read by someone at some time. Uh, he influenced many writers in the Western world. Uh, he wrote the Odyssey. Uh, many works of art and literature and film redo the Odyssey, retell the Odyssey, recreate the Odyssey. And so uh, Homer's like a template for much of what's interesting and exciting in world literature. And then you
1: picked two Russian authors. Yeah. Who was Dostoevsky?
0: Well, uh, Dostoevsky is a modern writer who uh, wrote many, you know, important works for world literature. Uh, Underground Man is the one I work on. Uh So he's uh, maybe one of the most important modern Russian writers.
1: And Leo Tolstoy. Now that's an author who wrote A Doorstop with War and Peace, and that's one of the books that you're looking at here. Tell us us about him. He's probably the best known of all these authors to people out there that at least maybe have heard his
0: name. He's a majestic writer. He's compelling. He's widely read. Maybe one of the greatest authors in the Western world. Um, And so— they're just—they're a joy to read, and uh, people from different cultures, different perspectives, different interests read his work, and so they're kind of e- eternal, if you will. It's like uh, their their works will live forever.
1: They're immortal. I would say these authors are immortal. Keith Dowd joins us. His book is Bosnian Authors in a European Window: A Comparative Study. What is it about you in Bosnia? How did you get so interested in Bosnia, and why do you care enough about these Bosnian authors to write a book like this?
0: Oh yeah, those are good questions. Well, it was during the war in Bosnia. I was observing it, like many people, reading it, you know, in the paper, just like many of us are reading about Gaza and the war in the Middle East. And uh, it, it pulled me in. Uh, I didn't like what was going on, uh, the, and uh, the violence and the war crimes. And so I started paying attention and I, you know, wrote some things on some blogs and I was invited to a conference right after the war in Bosnia. And I went and participated in the conference. I gave a paper. You know, I'd never been there before. I'm not a Slavic scholar about Bosnia. I gave the paper and they say, you're one of us, live with it. And they were right. I, I don't think we'd be friends in any other context, but in the context of Bosnia, these scholars from Europe and in Bosnia. We, we became friends, colleagues, comrades, if you will. And so then I had a Fulbright, and I went to Sarajevo, and I taught there. Uh, I wrote a book that was translated and published in Bosnia. I do an online journal called Spirit of Bosnia, or Dug Bosnia in Bosnia. Uh, I had a Fulbright when I was in Tuzla, and I worked with a colleague, and we went to, uh, into villages and uh, collected folklore on uh, marriage customs. Um, And so I've just been active. It's a place that kind of clicks for me. I think it brings out my best. I mean, at at Wittenberg, I'm an ordinary professor, but uh, in Bosnia things click and what I say is interesting and what Bosnians do is interesting to me. And so um, there's a formation of friendship, if you will, in the sense that we're collaborators in important projects. You just
1: uh, indicated that you have a connection with Wittenberg and Springfield. Uh, you're retired now, right? That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you were a, a sociologist. You're still a sociologist. Um, are, are there two kinds? Um, there's, uh, what, statistical and theoretical? Is it? it no, that's a, a fair question. I went to graduate school in
0: Canada, and so the people I studied with were social theorists uh, in phen- phenomenology and critical theory. And so they had more of a European approach to sociology. I mean, we'd even read Hegel or Kant. And so uh, statistics really wasn't a method by which they did a social inquiry. Whereas in the United States, it is the dominant you know, way to go. So yeah, they uh, taught their students to theorize, so to speak, uh, and they were mentors. Uh, one advantage of being in the academy is that your professors, if you're lucky, are, are mentors they're willing to mentor you and they did and so with this book though I'm not doing sociology I'm doing comparative literature but for me the advantage of comparative literature is it's you're freer and it's kind of easier to be theoretical when you make the comparisons between different authors whereas in sociology and social theory When you're theorizing, you're restricted by empirical boundaries uh, and empirical duties and the need to be a scientist and your theory is serving the science. Whereas comparative literature, you're just making comparisons for the joy of of making those comparisons and what they illuminate. It's more humanistic, if you will.
1: Mm. Okay. And you went to school in Canada. Does that mean you're actually a Canadian?
0: No, I'm not a Canadian. My wife's Canadian. Okay. Um, but, uh, no, I went to Canada. I went to graduate school there. I lived in Toronto, and it was an informative time for me in my young adulthood.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Keith Dowd joins us. You're listening to the Book Nook on 91.3 WYSO. And, uh, Keith, let's talk about Homer and this Bosnian author who I'd never heard of and, and why this is appropriate. Well,
0: Mach D Star is, if you will, a national poet. He's to Bosnians what maybe Robert Frost is to uh, so Walt Whitman. You know? um, and so he's a distinctly Bosnian, and he's read widely in school. And uh, his most important work is kind of a masterpiece where he wrote poetry that mimed or imitated uh, these medieval tombstones scattered throughout Bosnia, 60,000. And some have an inscriptions on them. And he sort of evokes the, the spirits, the ghost, the remains, the history, the context of the people in really poetic and moving ways. So um, that's, so the, the limestones come alive, you will. So that's his major work of poetry. But another work of poetry was published after he died, a year after he died. And it's called Motrieka uh, in Bosnian, and it means you know deep purple river, if you will. Uh, and uh, it hasn't been translated, although I, with four other people, I did translate the book of poetry. And it's uh, it's the Odyssey. It's a modern Odyssey, and and D Star shows a, a close affinity with Homer, and and uh, the intimacy between. D Star and Homer is, is moving, compelling, and it's only when you see the allusions to Homer, which are sometimes cryptic, that you appreciate the power and beauty of the poetry. And so I'm kind of an essentialist, if you will. I'm saying it's essential to recognize D Star's relation to Homer in order to fully appreciate the meaningfulness of D Star's poetry.
1: You're listening to The Book Nook on 91.3 WYSO, Fact-Based Journalism in Service of Democracy. I'll continue my conversation with Keith Doubt right after this. The Book Nook continues on WYSO. I've been joined in studio by Professor Keith Doubt. Let's talk about the second writer and why you connected this writer with Dostoevsky. Well— you can see it if you're familiar with Mikhail Bakhtin,
0: uh, the Russian literary critic and his discussion of double-voiced discourse. So Bakhtin is the major literary critic for understanding Dostoevsky, and his essays are decisive uh, for that. But when you read Salimovich, you see the same kind of narrative occurring in the novels. And I, if you will, I got in Im- proof for this relationship and there's an interview online where as, during the interview uh, the interviewer asks Salimovich well which author has most influenced you or which author is most important to you immediately he says Dostoevsky he said no one has a stature, no one has his rank so it's Salimovich's deep respect for Dostoevsky that is crucial pivotal, the center board for understanding Selimovitch and getting into uh, the character of his writing, the the majesty of his writing. And,
1: and let's talk about scapegoating.
0: Sure. sure. Well, uh, for me, this was, I've written about scapegoating before and its a motif, but for me what was interesting to compare Tolstoy and Andrich, uh, Ivo Andrich, Leo Tolstoy, is that In Andridge's novel, the scapegoating motif kind of dominates the novel, uh, Bridge on the Drina, which won the Nobel Prize. Uh, In Tolstoy, the Martyr, the theme of the Martyr dominates uh, war and peace. Uh, And so what I try to do is construct a dialectic between the Martyr and the scapegoat uh, in order that we can see the parameters of each, the parameters of what it means to be a scapegoat the parameters of what it means to be a martyr, because there's kind of a flip or a dialect, if you will, in the sense there are moments in Andrich's novel where it's not so much the scapegoat, but the martyr is underneath the scapegoat. And likewise with Tolstoy, the fear or the risk or the dread is that the martyr becomes a scapegoat. And so they're Janus faced, if you will. Um, So the scapegoat is an object lesson. Uh, it, so I mean, it's studied in literature, in sociology, in psychology, in, you know even in psychology, they talk about the scapegoat in the family, the child who's you know excluded or mistreated or something like that, who serves to you know, create a, a negative solidarity in the family as being the one who's scapegoated for the sins of the family or whatever. This is true for nations as well. And so scapegoat is an interpretive paradigm that's used to explain a lot of victimization. So scapegoating is a way to interpret victimization. It's not the only one, and it shouldn't be the dominant one, but you need to critically understand uh, the way in which the,
1: the the term scapegoating interprets violence and victimization. And the Drina book, which I have not read, opens with this horrible scapegoating uh during the Ottoman Empire, when uh, Bosnia was part of the Ottoman Empire, Mm. and this poor man, Mm. because of a bridge, is, uh, well, we don't want to talk about it on the radio, but they do a really horrible thing to him. And and when I read about that, when I read your account in the book, I thought, well, I don't want to read this. I mean, that's just, I I don't think I could get past that.
0: Yeah. Uh, What you say, your empathy and your, your recognition of its significance is very true and dead on is a very powerful way to open the novel, in the beginning of the novel. It sets the tone. It kind of grips the reader. Uh, it is it is gruesome, and if it's hard to read in my book, it's ten times harder to read in Andrich's book. And that's the majesty and artistry of Andrich in the sense when he tells this execution uh, it's done with a kind of sublime beauty despite all the ugliness and horror and terrifying character of it. Andrich is a great writer and uh, it, it's it's such he's at the peak after you, you read that you, the novel kind of peaks and then from then it kind of plateaus although it's always interesting in the details or telltale throughout but in a way each vignette after that is kind of a a milder version of scapegoating in different contexts, in different variations, in different keys, if you will. So scapegoating is the motif that kind of holds the novel together,
1: and you pivot back and forth between Andrich and Tolstoy, and in the Tolstoy we have the the War and Peace, mm-hmm. and we have this uh, officer who's uh, really badly hurt on the battlefield, mm-hmm. and, and as he's lying there. Uh, they think he's he's dying right. they've lost and napoleon uh, comes walking by and, and, and admires his pain yeah. yes yes he's the martyr
0: yes yes and for the russians yeah he was he's the martyr and who uh, uh, yet revives and uh, he's martyr so I think for Tolstoy the martyr, even the women in Tolstoy's novels are are martyrs. And so that's uh, something there. So what I say is the martyr, why, why is there a martyr? What does the martyr do? What function does the martyr serve? The martyr serves to link love and justice. If there's justice without love or love without justice, they're estranged from each other. So the martyr's hope, it may be vain and futile, but the martyr's hope is that justice and love will merge. And then the martyr has served his or her purpose. Um, with scapegoating, what's estranged is power and authority. So the authorities have power but no authority. The the guy who was impaled uh, didn't respect the authorities.
1: We weren't going to talk about what
0: happened. Okay, I won't say anymore. Oh, okay. uh, but he— uh, By scapegoating him, they merged authority and power. Mm -hmm. Power became authoritative.
1: Okay. If you just tune in, my guest is Keith Doubt. You're listening to The Book Nook. His book is Bosnian Authors in a European Window, a Comparative Study. And you wrote something in this uh, final section with Leo Tolstoy and Andrich that really struck me. You write... The dividing line between a barbaric society and a civilized society is the depth of a society's taboo against scapegoating. If the taboo is strong, there is social stability. If the taboo is feeble, there is enemy. Societies in which the media and popular culture promote the scapegoating ritual are barbaric. Hardly societies at all. Absolute freedom reigns back to back with absolute terror. This sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, painfully true. I mean, scapegoating turns a society into a crowd, uh, a lawless crowd. And that's the. I, I appreciate you reading that passage. I, I don't know if I could add anything more to it. But you'd rather not yeah yes oh, okay but the consequence of scapegoating is now societys not a
1: society it's, it's a crowd well we certainly have some politicians who are into scapegoating these days yes, yes. and our barbaric society is is yeah. becoming more barbaric
0: yeah you see that in the politicians you see it in the media when you watch you know com- the films that are being watched you go to watch a nice movie but all the previews are about scapegoating You have these films, war stories, whatever, and the storyline, you can pick it up right away. Someone's scapegoated. So our tolerance for scapegoating is increased with the modern cinema. I've been scapegoated. It's not fun. Uh, No, it's painful. It's injustice. It's, uh, it's an injustice. There's an unfairness because it doesn't respect the rights of the individual. It doesn't respect their individual agency. It doesn't respect their integrity as a human being. It, it violates their personhood. It transforms the person into a non-person.
1: So it hurts. Mm. Keith, let's talk some more about the comparison uh, between Tolstoy and your uh, Nobel uh, recipient you have these two women uh, you go into a different tolstoy book and, and these two women who both take their own lives but but there's it's very different mm. we we know one we know the reasons we we get the interior of of her mind and we know mm. why she's doing it the other one's just like boom suddenly she just does it
0: exactly no that that's uh, that's a, a good point in the sense and, and that's we appreciate the suddenness and the abruptness and the unaccountability of Fatima's death, suicide, uh, right after she got married, when we compare it with with Tolstoy, uh, uh, Anna, in Tolstoy's novel. And so it it just makes things clearer about the character and structure of Andrich's novel. Like, why why did this happen? Like, it's... uh, I mean, a very charming, attractive character. So you, you kind of wonder how it could have been otherwise. And uh, so I think the author authors care for their characters, and they sometimes don't care for their characters. So there's she served a function, and that was it for Andrich.
1: Yeah. My guess is Keith, doubt we're talking about Bosnian authors in a European window. Clearly, this is a book that is not going to be a bestseller. What's your hope for it? <laughs>
0: Well, my hope is that it strengthens the bridge between Europe and Bosnia, that uh, people in Europe will read Bosnian authors and appreciate the close relationship between Bosnian authors and European literature. And also, it will. I'm hoping it will support and encourage Bosnians who know this literature and have viewed it in different ways with different interpretations, will see connections to European literature they find empowering and enabling for their appreciation of their culture and heritage.
1: It seems hard to believe that it's been almost 30 years since the Dayton Peace Accords, and uh, those were negotiated just down the road from our studios. I'm wondering, uh, as someone who's familiar with Bosnia, most of us don't think about Bosnia anymore because it's not in the news very much. What is going on over there? What is the situation politically, uh, socially? uh, What is happening in the former Yugoslavia and in Bosnia?
0: Well, I mean, there was a lot to say to answer that question. We don't have enough time, but we
1: don't. Things are tough.
0: I mean, uh, the Dayton Peace Accords, as I've said before, put Bosnia in a straitjacket, and uh, so you have politicians who are nationalistic and stir up the society into a crowd and prevent reconciliation or you know joint enterprises or engagements. And so, one problem for Bosnia is getting into NATO. Uh, Croatia in NATO so there's no fast track for Bosnia to move into become a part of NATO to enter Europe fully politically and so that preventing that would be good for Bosnia for culturally politically social reasons but uh they're an outcast
1: speaking of outcasts I grew up during a period when they would uh, tell us to crawl under our desks in grade school because there might Mm. be a nuclear attack. We were Mm. terrified of the Soviet Union. We seem to have circled back uh, again historically. Now, there's a lot of hatred. Uh, Russia is an outcast, an international outcast, at least by the United States uh, viewpoint, Mm. government viewpoint. And here you have two Russian authors that you're talking about in your book, uh, comparing to these Bosnian authors. We have uh, a very famous author who I won't name, but she had a big bestseller, and her new book was going to be set in Russia. And the publisher pulled the plug on the book. Mm -hmm. They're not going to publish it because Russia. This is a very uh, polarized time that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on the situation right now and our, our attitudes toward uh, countries like Russia? Um,
0: well, Russia, in terms of Bosnia, Russia is in the background of the politics in Bosnia. So there's Republika Srpska and the Federation. Uh, Russia works Republika Srpska, and the president of S- Republika Srpska, Dodik, uh, to break things apart, kind of like some of our politicians here in the United States, like our U.S. Congress. Uh, uh, things are re- irreconcilable and tractable, uh, and the rhetoric is just belligerent and hateful. Well, you have the same thing, if not worse, in, in, among Bosnian politicians which makes it very hard to take positive progressive action. So it's in Russia's interest to make Bosnia a problem, not only for Bosnia but for the world and in particular the United States, given Ukraine. And so it's a a nice distraction for the Russians to stir up issues and problems in Bosnia because it it takes the focus off Ukraine.
1: And And Serbia itself has been a hmm. long time ally of, of uh, yeah. Russia and the Soviet right. Union.
0: Right, yeah, and yes, so they Russia doesn't want to see strengthening the relationship to Europe and those countries of Bosnia and Serbia, so that that's true too, yeah. I mean, there are Russians who fought inside of Russia for, for Serbia during the war. There are Russian uh, grave sites in Sarajevo, uh, Russian soldiers who died during that war.
1: That war? Ended 30 years ago. Yeah. Are we on the brink of World War III? Oh, I
0: can't answer that. Well, if people would read my book, I don't think we would be. Oh, that's the solution? Okay. Uh, well, that's I'm thinking if uh, people see the strength and depth and authenticity of the relationship between Bosnians and Europeans, then that will be more compelling than the antagonism or the splitting of the two sides.
1: Well, Looking at the Middle East, and I know it's not a pleasant thing to look at, but uh, seems like we have all these proxies, and uh, yeah. there's yeah. there's a lot of conflict there. It's getting worse by the yeah. moment. Yeah. Uh, just this week, we had this yeah. situation happen uh, yeah. that in in Iran that is is very yeah. volatile. It's scary.
0: Yes. Well, you know, to sort. Of provide some kind of bomb or escape, if you will. I think of the Palestinian poet, Darwish. And there's a film by Jean-Luc Godard called um, Our Musique, Notre Musique. And Darwish is in this film by Godard. And he speaks about the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis and what it means for Palestinians to have Israel for an enemy. And the profundity of his comments and commentary as, as an intellectual, as a poet, as, as a great man, uh, need to be heard and revisited. Uh, Darwish is no longer with us, but uh, he, in these negative times, you want to look to something positive and compelling. And what I do, I think of the Palestinian poet Darwish.
1: Well, Keith, I'm sorry to bring uh, current events and uh, politics and uh, war and conflict into the conversation, but that's the world we're living in. And it just struck me that maybe you might have some thoughts about that. And you do. And, and we really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the book Nook on WYSO. My guest has been Keith Doubt, and his book is Bosnian Authors in a European Window, a comparative study. It's the Booknook on WYSO and uh, don't touch that dial. We've got a special Booknook bonus segment coming your way right after this. Thanks for uh, staying tuned or for just tuning in. Uh, it's your Booknook bonus segment and uh, back when I used to host excursions on WYSO between uh, 1993 and uh, 2003 We would have musical guests, and I don't remember exactly what year this was. I think it was about 2000, but I know the date because it was the date of the winter solstice, and we had some special guests in studio called Puzzle of Light. Let's listen now to this musical interlude as we close out with our Book Nook bonus segment. Mm
2: An improvisation. Uh, we'll just have some fun with this, Megan. Why don't you... Who knows what will happen here.
1: Puzzle of Light. That took me back. Uh, I remember a group years ago, I hadn't even thought about them until I heard you play that music, a group called Jade Warrior, before they dropped, they, they used to do all instrumental stuff and it had that really ambient sound to it. It's just beautiful. Puzzle of Light, live here in our studio. And that was your special Book Nook bonus segment, a musical interlude there, recorded live in studio once upon a time about 25 years ago. Puzzle of Light joined us, Michael Bashaw on flute and some great harmonica there on that last uh, section, Sandy Kreitzer on guitar, and the late Bob Thompson on percussion. Bob brought his rock collection with him, and uh, that was a solstice performance recorded on the solstice. I think the year was maybe 1999 or 2000 or 2001. It was. I don't remember exactly the year, but I know it was on the solstice. And uh, tomorrow in the Book Nook, I've got a special guest who will be on the program, her first appearance. I moved to Yellow Springs in January of 1993. And in June of 1993, I hosted my first program on this radio station. And During that first year that I was in town, I really hardly knew anybody. And I got a job working at a coffee shop in downtown Yellow Springs. I'm still affiliated with the Emporium. And I I met a lot of people there. It was a great social outlet for me. And I met this guy who would come in every day and get a copy of the New York Times. And it was Dr. Jim Agna who died a few years ago. And I got to know him. And during that first year I was in town, Jim and Mary Agna, his partner, his wife, they were both physicians, invited us over to their house for supper. We had a lovely meal with them. And I got to know him very well over the intervening years. And they invited me. Jim Agna invited me along with some other guys he knew. They had this group of guys that would play tennis every Wednesday. And then afterwards, well, not every Wednesday. I don't think they played in the dead of winter. But but they would go out to eat on Wednesday nights together. And they would go to these nice restaurants in various places around the Miami Valley. It was a regular thing. And then once a year in August, they would all get together at Bill Hooper's house and have a big supper. Not at a restaurant. Each guy was designated to bring something. One guy would bring the wine. Another guy would bring the sweet corn, Bud Weaver would bring the steaks from his uh, grocery store, and we'd all sit together, about a dozen guys, and I just would get a lesson about Yellow Springs, about the history of Yellow Springs from these guys. It was really amazing, and most of them are no longer with us. But uh, if you're from Yellow Springs, you might recognize some of the names of uh, the gentlemen in this August group Bill Scott, Cy Tebbets, Bill Hooper, Bud Weaver, Jim Agna, Vic Ayoub, Paul Cooper, Perry Stewart, Joe Maloney, Sam Bechtel, and Perry Stewart. And from what I understand, before I joined the group, the late uh, Reed V. Meister was also a member, and it was so great to uh, be a part of this group. And I enjoyed it so much. And whenever I'd see Jim Magna, he would tell me about his family. I got to meet some of his family members, his sons, his daughters, grandkids. And he was so proud of them. And he has a son who is in a very great band uh, here locally. Not, not a son, a grandson. Uh, that's uh, Jake. Jake uh, is in Speaking Sons. Maybe you've seen him. Anyway, uh, a great family, and I know that Jim would have been so proud of his daughter Gwen, who just published a book called "Finding Home: Words from Kids Seeking Sanctuary." She wrote it with Shelley Rotner, and Gwen recently retired as the principal of an elementary school in Northampton, Massachusetts. And so she's writing these children's books. And tomorrow on the program at 1030 Sunday morning, my guest will be Gwen Agna. We're gonna be talking about her book, Finding Home, Words from Kids Seeking Sanctuary. We have 100 million refugees out there in the world right now, trying to get away from conflicts, from wars, from famines, from poverty, from climate change, and trying to move to better lives, to better places, trying to escape where they are. They might be coming up from Venezuela, where the economy has completely collapsed. They might be coming out of Central Asia because the climate has changed, or Africa, or someplace where there's troubles. And these kids come with these families seeking sanctuary, and this book brings it home to us. So I'll be talking to Gwen Agna about Finding Home, Words from Kids Seeking Sanctuary, right here, in the Book Nook, that's tomorrow morning at 1030. And I know Jim and Mary Agna, her parents, would have been so proud that Gwen made it onto the Book Nook because they listened to the program, and I know that she has a sister right here in Yellow Springs now. I hope she'll be tuned in. For the Book Nook, I'm Vic McUnis. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we have almost a 1,000 interviews archived as podcasts. You can listen anytime at wyso.org.